when I was growing up, my, uh, my family, we had to travel a lot. And um, I, th- I went to five different elementary schools, uh, starting in kindergarten in uh, a tiny town called Maumel, Arkansas, is where I started. So I got a nod from that. Wow, somebody's familiar. It's a sub- suburb of Little Rock, which that just sounds funny for me to say, but I guess Little Rock's a pretty big city now. Um, and so I was always having to remake friends. And then when I was 12 years old, we moved to Memphis, actually Cordova, Tennessee. And that was a shock for me in many, many ways. I was in also in middle school. So I, I went from this uh, really wonderful middle school where we like had uh, dances we, where everybody danced and like you danced with your friends whether they were boys or girls and on, on Friday afternoons we practiced dancing and we learned line dancing together and when I think about those classes I think about all these friends everybody they were all my friends we were all friends with each other and then I came to Memphis Tennessee and I think The rest of my time in middle school, I could be sure that maybe I had two friends. It was the worst part of my life, for sure. And so much of it had to do with uh, me not understanding the culture. Both my folks were from the north. Also had to do with the fact that I was biracial in a very racially charged environment that I did not know how to navigate. And as I grew up, I found myself developing all of these different coping mechanisms uh, in terms of friendship, where I was able to keep people at an arm's length so much of the time because I had learned how to survive. I'd learned how to deal with how hurtful and harmful people can be in your life, how you can think that you have a friend and then find out they've been talking bad about you behind your back. So I I learned all of these coping mechanisms and ways to survive, and I thought that was just how the world worked and, and that was the only way to live. And then when I was 21 years old, I had a lot more friends by then, but I was 21 years old and I had this amazing encounter with Jesus. And I knew grace in a way I'd I'd never even imagined it before. And it began to to reshift and and, and recalibrate so many aspects of my life and, and how I saw the world around me. And yet, as I continue to Uh, grow in my faith and in age, so that was 14 years ago now, Um, there were still all of these vestiges of survival attached to my heart and how I would navigate relationships and still learn, oh, oh, that was too close. I said too much. I better back up so I don't get hurt, so I don't get harmed again. And I don't think I'm the only one who's ever experienced some of those things. Hopefully some of you had better experiences growing up with friendships than that. Um, But I think we can all relate in some way to thinking, I don't know that there's any other way to do this thing called 
friendship. Even when you get, if and when you, you get married or, or you want to get married, you're, you're with a spouse and you realize, man, all these things that I brought in and how I perceived and operated out of friendship, that does not work too well in marriage. So many of those things. And so I'm hoping as we look at this text and um, we examine how Jesus operated in friendship, we see there is another way. There's another way to be in relationship with other people and to hold them closely and dearly and not to be afraid of being hurt or harmed. So let's do this together. As we look at this text, there's a number of things that, that we're going to try to glean out of this. There's going to be things that Jesus, I believe, we can see is calling us to let go of and things that he's calling us to embrace. So I want to start as we look in verse 14, something that Jesus is calling us to let go of. He says in verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I was reading that passage uh, with, with Robin a couple weeks ago as he was preparing for his sermon, earlier, looking earlier in this text, and, and that struck me, that sentence struck me as uh, somebody who likes to push against things to hear Jesus say, yeah, you could be my friend as long as you do what I tell you to. I thought, man, that doesn't sound like friendship to me. But as I continued to meditate on it and think about it and talk about it with others, I realized that what is a friend if they don't ever do what you ask of them? Hey, can, can you give me a ride somewhere? No, nah, I can't do that, man. Um, could, could you just sit with me for a minute? I, I, I've had a hard day. Nah, I, I'm sorry, I can't do that, dude. Uh, could, could you, let me borrow a dollar? Let me hold a dollar? That's how we say it in Memphis. Let me hold a dollar? <laughs> no, nah, man, I, I can't let you. I, I need all my, my money. That's not a friendship, is it? But the minute that somebody asks you a, a request like that, there's something that's imposed upon you, and it's your convenience. And I think that's the first thing that, that Jesus is saying here in this passage in terms of friendship that, that we're going to spend a few minutes looking at is how do we let go of convenience? How do we let go of convenience in our friendships, in our relationships. There's a, there's a passage in Matthew where um, Jesus, it's, it's Matthew chapter 20, if you want to flip there, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 26, this whole passage. And in, in the beginning of this passage, you might even have a heading above it in your Bible in verse 17, and, and it says there that Jesus foretells his death for the third time. All right? So he, he breaks it down to the disciples again. He's like, here's what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to be taken before that Sanhedrin, and they're going to convict me, and they're going to crucify me, and all this stuff. On the third day, I'm going to write. He, like, he like goes step by step through it. And this is the third time he's done that. And then, right after that, John and James and their mama come up to Jesus to ask him a question. They brought their mama for like that extra bit of authority, right? And uh, so they ask him, hey, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom and your glory, um, can, can we sit, James and John, can, can my 
children, my, my boys, they're really good boys. They're really good boys. Can they sit on your right and your left in your kingdom? And uh, Jesus just got done telling them, look, I'm going to be wrongly accused. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Okay? So that's the plan. That's what's, that's what's about to go down. And the disciples are thinking in their head, nothing of what Jesus just said. They don't even listen to him. They just move on to thinking about, no, this dude's going to reign. Everything's going to be working out good. And we want to be reigning right there with him. And so Jesus says, all right, let me, let me, let me tell you, let me try this another way. He says, all right, come, the rest of y'all disciples come over here. Because the other disciples, they heard about it. They heard what James and John were asking. And it says they were disgruntled. That's the word, uh, the English translation of the word. They were hot. They were mad. They were angry that John and James would even ask such a question. And so Jesus says, all right, y'all, come on over here. And he, you know, he, sit, he would sit down, right? So he was, he was the teacher. So he got to sit down and rest, and they, they stood up. <clears throat> no, nah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I am tired, though. I'm going to sit down for this part, just for illustration's sake. So he... Uh, he sits down and he says, look, all right, this is, the rest of the world works like this. Yeah, you got these rulers, you got these kings and everybody, and they all want to, to rule and lord over you. But I work a different way. I'm here to be a servant. And if you're with me, that means you got to be a servant too. So this kind of thing happens all the time with Jesus' friends, with the disciples. He explains things to them over and over and over. He he paints pictures with his words. He literally like heals people and uses those as illustrations about what he came to do. And the disciples just, they just don't get it. They're just always slowing him down. They're always making him stop and have to re-explain what's going on and like retool what he's doing. And okay, we were, we're, we're about to do this, but I got to slow down. I got to explain it to you one more time. Jesus spent a lot of time being inconvenienced by his friends. I'm not even talking about all the people that come up and ask for healings when he's trying to like catch a, a little break, a little siesta, um, you know, chilling under a tree or at a well or something like that. I'm just talking about his buddies, his friends, the disciples. They're constantly inconveniencing him. All right, just imagine this. Like, you're God, eternally existing with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and then you limit yourself into space and time, and then, so you've got, you're, you're in all this flesh and human stuff, and then you alter your divine calendar for the salvation of the entire world for your friends who won't listen to you, who won't remember what you told them. But what about us? Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves for our friends? Or are our divine calendars too important? We got too many things to do. We got too many places to be and things to achieve. That's some of us. Some of us, we're not reliable and we're not flexible. We're not reliable because our calendar is far too packed with things. And so whenever somebody asks for something from us, we just say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't, mm, the calendar, oh, uh, looking at my watch that has my whole calendar on it. 
and we can't do anything about it. That's some of us. Some of us aren't flexible, so we might have time, but it doesn't fit into our everyday routine. So when our friend reaches out in need, they're like, well, hmm, can you meet two weeks from now? Well, no, my mom just died, and I, I really would like some time right now. That would be good if you're my friend, right? Some of us have those issues. I right now am guilty of having too full of a calendar right now. Way too full of a calendar. Let's, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about why we might not be reliable or flexible. What's behind that? There are certain types of people who get their sense of worth from that. People who are achievers. We, we get our sense of self-worth by how many accomplishments we can get done. And somehow we twist it around in our mind to think that our friends will like us more the more things we achieve and we accomplish. But our friends are like, dude, I just need a little bit of time, a little bit of care. I need you to be able to look me in the eye when I'm telling you something that's important to me but you're already thinking about the next thing you're gonna do that's gonna make you feel so good because you're an achiever. Or maybe you're the kind of person who's like me and you have so many ideas and so many things you wanna do and early on in life you learned that even if you couldn't do relationships well, you could do a lot of cool stuff and by proxy, you would have some friends that way. And it's all good, like we don't have to get close or anything because that doesn't work out. I already know that. I know like I can't bring my whole self, I can't talk about what I'm afraid of or things like that, but we could talk about the cool stuff. We like the cool stuff. We like doing the activist thing. We like doing the art thing. We like doing that stuff. So we could just kind of be friends that way. That's some of us, but what, what ends up happening the funny thing about it is we're doing those things to find acceptance. But then what we end up doing is pushing the people away that we want acceptance from. Because we have no flexibility anymore. Because we've already determined what it is that is gonna meet our need for friendship and intimacy. And the people who aren't like you are like over there like, nah. I think I'm about to give up on this friendship. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for us achievers and us people who like to do too much stuff. See, I knew they weren't real friends anyway. I'm gonna keep on trucking, keep my head down, keep going, keep going. But not all of us are like that. Some of us, when we hear this, when we hear, oh yeah, inconveniencing, yeah, that's a godly thing. I love to inconvenience myself for other people. And I will do anything for anyone, anytime. There's a, there's a name for that. It's called a pushover. It's called somebody who has found their identity in being useful to somebody else and has lost their own sense of purpose to the point where, watch this, this is, this is, this is crazy, but this is what we do. This is what human beings do. We, we find our identity in being able to help people, even if they don't really need help that much. It's like, uh, 
man, I'm having a hard week uh, financially, hard month. Yeah, how you doing? I'm uh, having a hard month financially, and, you know, I got to get this tire, and I'm saying, well, here's $100, and they just give it to you. They're not giving you the money because they know you need it. I didn't even ask for it. They're giving it to you because they need to feel useful to somebody else in order to feel valuable. And so they're using you. The person who is is so helpful and so willing to be inconvenienced all the time actually ends up using the other person in order to get their self-worth. Now, what, what we all want are those friendships. We want that acceptance. We want that intimacy that comes. But because We've learned in so many ways from our family dynamics, from our culture, from our racial contexts, from uh, the friendships that we had from uh, middle school. My God. We figure, what other way is there? How How does Jesus do this? How does he find and strike a certain balance where, where he's, he's willing to be inconvenienced, but he still has a sense of his own identity, his own purpose. Because remember now, we are talking about God, yes, but we are also talking about a man who lived with all the same things that we do all the same need for acceptance and love. Because that's, that's what we're breaking down here. How do, you, how do you love a friend? How do you be a friend and love that person? That's what Jesus is talking about in this text. And you know that the answer, uh, the, the, the very uh, simple and complex answer Jesus, he just got through talking about in this passage. So let, let's go back to the, to the text here. And uh, He says, uh, back in verse 15, I mean, chapter 15, in verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So abide in my love. You see, part of it is that Jesus, in in his neediness, he, he relies first on the love of God. He relies first on the love of God and what he knows of who God to be. And so when he looks out into the sea of relationships and friends that he has, he's not looking for them to fulfill all the needs that he has as a human being. So often we we have a feeling and a, and, a, and a need that accompanies that, and we look out and we expect the people around us to somehow be able to meet that need for us. Sometimes they can, especially if you ask. A lot of times we don't even ask. We just want them to read our minds so we don't have to feel our neediness, our finiteness, our lintiness. There we go. Somebody, somebody got that. Somebody else get that on the way home. Um, but in Jesus's neediness, he first, he reached out to God. So he was able to let go of convenience 
But in order to do that, he also had to embrace something. He had to embrace pain in these relationships. Once, once, once these things start happening in your life, once you start to be inconvenienced in a real way by your friends, it results in pain. Because all those ways with your divine calendar or your need to be overly helpful, um, those start breaking down. When you find this, this new balance, this new way where you're not expecting everyone around you to just meet your needs and you're doing all of these manipulative things to try to make that so. And so Jesus deals with that by embracing the pain. This is something uh, Robin spoke about last week and really uh, quite often actually. Um, and so, so let's look and, and connect that to uh, something that we're seeing here in this same text. I want to share this with you, and I think we've got a slide of it as well. Uh, just, just a thought about this inconvenience and how it connects to the embracing of pain. You will know to what degree you are willing to be inconvenienced by the amount of pain you are willing to embrace. That goes for both of those, those kinds of people, but in different ways. You will know to what degree you are willing to be inconvenienced by the amount of pain that you are willing to embrace. So let's keep unpacking how Jesus is navigating these uh, relationships that are inconveniencing his literal divine calendar. A lot of people use that word literally, uh, not in the correct way. There's even this guy, he... Um, he, he has a sign. I heard a clip of it, I think, on the radio. Maybe it's NPR or something. And he has a bar, and he made a sign. He says, if you use the word literally in this bar, you have five minutes to finish your drink, and then I'm kicking you out if you do not leave. <laughs> That's how tired he was of that word. But I just used it right. My God. It's okay. If I don't do anything else this morning, I've already done that. So, let's go back to the... the verses here. How does Jesus embrace the pain in this passage? He says in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 15, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. This, this was a good one for me to be able to keep people at arm's length. It's how much you tell them you realize, look, all right, so my dad didn't mean any harm by this, but when I would come home from school as a teenager and I wasn't smiling, he'd say, what's wrong with you, son? Why aren't you smiling? You think about killing yourself? Okay, so can't be sad around dad. Can't show any uh, neutral or sad-based emotions on my face, right? So that was one of my, my good teachers in how to keep people at arm's length. There were various other wonderful teachable moments that I had of how that doesn't turn out well for me, but that was um, one that comes to my mind quickly for some reason. I, I don't know. Jesus dealt with this a lot too. He just says here, you know, I, I've revealed all this stuff to you guys. Like, we've gotten really close. And so, 
we're friends. That's what a friend is. That's what a good friend is. It's somebody you can sit and you can talk with about anything. You can share what's on your heart, what's on your feelings, and they don't have to immediately try to fix what's wrong with you. Of course, the problem is, if you avoid all of those things for yourself, like I did for such a long period of time in my life, then you become a fixer. You become somebody who, uh, and I say that in quotation marks, a fixer, because you've never dealt with yourself in that way. When somebody else starts to do it, oh my God, you lose your mind. Like, okay, so what do we need to do? How do we fix this? What, what do you need? Uh, let's go out to eat real quick. Let's, let's make it go away. I can't handle being around somebody that's having all these feelings. But that's not what Jesus does. And that's not how he responds to his own feelings. In the garden of, uh, I'm going to tear it up, Gethsemane. How was that? That, was pretty, that came out pretty good. I, it doesn't always come out like that. I, I got a new fake tooth. I had a, a retainer for like a year, so maybe that has something to do with it. I've been preaching with it. Some of y'all didn't even notice. I had to. It was in the front. So in the garden, in uh, Matthew chapter 26, verse 38, Jesus, he's really, he's really sad because he's going to die on the cross. Good reason to be sad. Yeah. Um, even though he's God, he's really sad. He's really lonely. He's really scared. He's feeling all that stuff. And you know what he does? He doesn't say, me and God got this. Oh, I'm straight. Don't worry about it, y'all. I don't need nothing. Like, me and God, we're this close. We're real tight. So, you know, what do I need y'all for? You guys can't even remember what I'm doing half the time. I keep trying to tell you I'm about to go die, and you just can't get it. You don't want to hear it. And so, he says, he tells his disciples. So, first, they go up to the garden. He's like, all right, I'm going to pray. And he brings Jane, James, John, and Peter a little bit further with him because that was like his main really tight group of friends. And so he brings them a little bit further and he says, um, my soul, in verse 38, Matthew 26, verse 38, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And he came to the disciples in verse 40, I skipped a verse. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, man, Peter's the whipping boy, isn't he? He was like, Peter's the grown up. You got to take all the, all the stuff. You're the first to talk, so I'm going to be the first to blast you, right? So he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation and then he says something really interesting. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus asks his friends in the most difficult time of his life, can you be here with me? I'm scared. I'm sad. And they fell asleep on him. Jesus is saying, hey, you're, you're my friends if you do what I say. They ain't doing what he says right now, but thankfully he knew 
when he said that, he wasn't expecting 100% compliance. He's just like, just get it, just if we're shooting arrows, just get it on the bale of hay. You know, just, just, just try to do it sometimes a little bit, right? I think that's how you translate the actual Greek of that passage. Like, just try to kind of a little bit do what I say as best you can, because the, the spirit is willing, but the, the flesh is weak. That's another way of saying, you know what, even though my friends are going to hurt me sometimes, my feelings are going to be hurt, and maybe it's just because they're sleepy, like, I could be hurt right now that somebody's sleeping, you know, because, but their, maybe their spirit is willing, like they got here, but their flesh is weak. So they stayed up too late last night doing whatever, trying to like maybe help somebody out because they still needed that acceptance, and that's cool, right? But he also recognized that he could actually be harmed by his friends, that in that he could let people in close enough that they could really cause him deep harm and pain. One of his closest guys, Judas, betrayed him, outright betrayed him, just did him in. And that dude was still with them at the Last Supper where we get our our communion sacraments from. Jesus brought him all the way up to the point, to that point. Now, what I'm not saying is that you need to be just totally undiscerning in who you bring into your inner circle. That's not what I'm saying. Because as you notice, even in that passage, Jesus brought all 12 of the disciples into that area of the garden to pray, but then he brought three disciples a little bit further with him. So he was discerning in how he let certain people in at certain lengths. But what he's teaching us in this passage uh, that, I'd, I, that I'd like us to think about for a moment is that it is worth it. It is worth it to have friends even knowing that they can hurt you and they will hurt you and they can harm you and they will harm you. It's worth it and it's actually normal. Because there would be other times when his friends would be able to be with him. And even earlier in this passage, Peter was determined to go to the death with Jesus. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And Jesus had so much grace for that. This reminds me of the, um, the quote uh, from Henry Nouwen that's in our bulletin. I think that this is a good time uh, to look at that. Henry Nouwen, a, a Catholic priest, um, very uh, prominent Christian writer, familiar with friendship. You know, he was a priest. He was uh, celibate, you know, not um, marrying. And so his, his closest relationships were those friends. And he has this to say about friends as we think about embracing the pain. When we honestly ask ourselves which person in our lives mean the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us 
in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. Do do you want to be a friend who cares? This is not something that you can manufacture or produce. Maybe for a, a while you can. But without embracing the pain and being willing to know that how could I live a different way than what Jesus is showing us and asking us to come and follow me without experiencing the pain that he experienced. If Jesus is the way, if he has shown us the path that is good, then we can trust that we can follow in his steps, knowing that he is able to sympathize with us in every way. Our great high priest, as Hebrews would say about him. So, let us move forward with the intent of letting go of our convenience, not talking about toasters, and embrace our pain. Embrace the pain. Toasters being a modern appliance of convenience. Maybe microwave would be better, a better illustration there. So, There's something else that this passage is, is dealing with us, dealing with that I want to touch on briefly here. And um, it's, it's another thing that Jesus is, is, is telling us we can let go of. And as we read uh, verse 16, we will begin to see a little bit about that. So verse 16, still in John 15. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus said of himself, you call me, he said, the the Son of Man came eating and drinking in Matthew 11. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's the kind of reputation that Jesus had, the most churchy dude that ever lived, right? Like he started the church. So he's the most churchy dude that he's the head of the church. But how many of us today who claim Christianity, who are churchy people, would have that type of reputation? Well, some of us do, but it ain't for the same reasons that Jesus do. It's for, we're trying to fill that hole somehow, and it's not, it's, we don't have that reputation because we're caring for those people. We, we have that reputation because we're saying, hey, pass that uh, from those people. So, but he's, he's saying here to the disciples, I chose you. I saw you where you were in your weakness, in your humanity, in your uh, lack of educational degrees, in your lack of, of, of financial success. And I said, I want you to be my friend. I want to confide in you the deepest, most powerful secrets of the entire universe. I choose you. That's the type of friend that Jesus is, that he goes out and he finds us. 
Jesus doesn't meet us on our terms, but he does meet us where we're at. He doesn't meet us on our terms, but he does meet us where we're at. Yeah, I know I ended that in a preposition, and I like it. I like ending that in a preposition. That was on purpose. Jim Allman. <laughs> Poet Jim Allman. He's all about breaking down those things. So I, there's a couple of people that are, that are really inspiring uh, that I thought of when I was thinking about how, how Jesus, he, he chooses people um, that are unlikely, and he changes the game in terms of what the world looks at as friendship. The world looks at friendship trans- transactionally. Sure, there's a lot of cutesy quotes that don't, but on the base level, like when Jesus gathered up the disciples, remember, uh, he, and he was telling James and John and, and what it was to all, all 12 of them, and, and he was telling them how the world works. The, the friendships of the world look, uh, look similar where it's a transaction. It's, well, we'll be friends if, if you can meet me in the stuff that I like and I can meet you in the stuff that you like and we like the same kind of things and uh, we look kind of similar or we laugh kind of similar, we, we, we share the same cultural context and, and, and we can get something from each other in that sort of topical way and we don't really ever have to get deeper than that. Uh, but there's some people that are like Jesus in that they let go of reputation. There's a guy named uh, Daryl Davis. A documentary was made about his, his um, journeys recently. We got a picture of him. Uh, Daryl Davis is a musician, a piano player. And there's a, there's a documentary about what, what he's doing here. Um, and the documentary is called Accidental Courtesy. And uh, so he's a piano player, uh, I think Boogie Woogie style. I think that's right. Piano player, is that right? Okay, yeah, no. Um, And uh, so he was playing at a show one time many, many years ago now, and um, a guy offered to buy him a drink afterwards. And they were sitting talking, and the guy said, is a white guy, and Daryl is, oh yeah, Daryl's the guy on the left. Uh, I should have said that right up front. <laughs> uh, so Daryl is sitting, having a drink with this guy, and uh, the guy says, uh, you know, I've, I've never actually had um, a conversation uh, with somebody of a different race than me. And uh, he was like, oh, really? He said, yeah, so why, why is that? You know, he's like, well, I'm a leader in the Ku Klux Klan. And, uh, but I really liked your music. And that began this really strange journey for Daryl Davis where he realized that these, so many of these people in the Ku Klux Klan, while they, they, they all shared this very hateful ideology, many of them had never had any contact with a black person. No, no real ever conversation. And so he began to like go to KKK rallies and just talk to these guys. And uh, now he has a collection of over two dozen robes of KKK guys, grand wizards and grand dragons and just regular old, I don't know what the regular ones are called. (laughs) But he has robes of all those folks who through nothing more than a relationship with him 
gave it up, changed their ideologies. You think Daryl Davis was concerned about his reputation? Oh, and in fact, if you watch that documentary, there are some black folks that are hot, mad at him spending his time doing that. And I totally understand that. And there are different paths and ways to approach that particular idea and, and, and uh, construct of racism in America, but that's the path that he chose. Friendship and relationship. There's another, uh, another woman, or a woman, named uh, Megan Phelps Roper, and she, she did a, uh, a TED Talk recently about leaving this church called uh, Westboro Baptist Church. She grew up picketing, uh, and being involved in rallies, hate rallies against Jews and um, gay people and um, just everybody but them, basically. That's how, that's how she grew up. And um, some of y'all are going to love this. You're going to be like, see, I told you. Um, she started to change through initiation of relationship online where she would be sharing posts, hate posts, about these different groups of people, and some people online started to engage her and just ask her questions and just say like, well, how does this line up with uh, what this passage in the Bible says about loving your enemies or so on and so forth? And these, these folks approached her in such a way that slowly her defenses started to come down. And she started to realize and see that these people who she had been taught since before she could read the signs she was holding, were human beings just like her. Just like her. Her and, and Daryl have that in common from different sides of the coin. That's something so powerful as we think about, we meditate, and we look at the humanity of Jesus is Jesus was able to meet people right where they were. That's why they came to him. That's why his reputation was one of friends with, with all the outcasts of society. So, on one side, there's a challenge here of who could you just reach out to that you know you walk around with judgment about? What kind of person? Who's your tax collector? Who's, who's, who's the, the, the sinner to you? But then the other question to think about in relation to that is, are you in such a place yourself right now that that person would want anything to do with you? That, that you've gotten to the point where you've dealt with enough of your own junk and been willing to open up and say, like, I got these issues with how I perceive the world, and it's not Christian, and it's not okay, and I'm willing to say that, and I want some help. I want to change. I want to get my worth from God and from, from right relationships, good friendships. I want to do something about that. Because you can't just go out of here and say, well, I'm determined to be different. They'll see right through you, and you'll give up, and you'll go back to your coping mechanisms of how you learn to survive. There's a point where you just gotta surrender, where you just gotta say, I'm not enough. 
I know from dust I was made and from dust I will return. I need help. I want to follow you, Jesus. And so letting go of our reputation is a way that we are trying to walk towards the gospel of Jesus and in turn embracing life. And that's where we'll conclude our our message this morning. Letting go of reputation and embracing life. So in the beginning of this passage that we started reading in John chapter 15, verse 13, John says this, he says, or Jesus says this, John records it, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Most of us won't be in a position where we have to do that at any point in our life where, we're, where we will literally <laughs> um, have to put our life in front of somebody else in order to save their, their physical life. Jesus says that's, that's the pinnacle. And some of us going back down that codependent spiral will say, yes, I'll sacrifice my life, I'll sacrifice everything. But a, a good way to understand if you really get what Jesus is talking about here is if you can flip it. If you can think about would you let somebody sacrifice their life for you? Do you think that you are loved by God? As uh, the spoken word poet, the father of the ghetto philosopher Common would say it like, he would say, be loved. He would, he would command it, be loved by God. Like God loves Martin Luther King. And God loves Gandhi. That when you realize that God loves you just as much as somebody like that, that's when you begin to get what Jesus is talking about here. That when you love someone and you value them for who they are, not for what they can do for you and fill up in you, that you would be, wor- that you would be willing to lay down your life for them. But in in order to do that, we have to surrender to our inability to perform all of these things. These are not performable things. They are things you have to embrace, that you have to pass through and into, that you have to let go of something else to be able to embrace the pain and to embrace life itself. Something has to die. The only way that you can do what Jesus is talking about here is if you've already been willing to die to your old way of doing things, to your coping mechanisms, to the ways the world has taught you to survive. Uh, I have this on a slide as well. Uh, Here's a different way of saying this. There is always a giving up, a putting to death of what you wanted your life to be before you can embrace the resurrected life God has been offering you all along. What Jesus is offering is life.
It's, it's strange, though, because he's talking about dying. We, we understand the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus in a cosmic sense, like we said in our assurance today, that this one man died, that we would all be made right with God. Our sins would be absolved. The propitiation of our sin was on God, was on Jesus on the cross. But what about his humanity? What about the perspective of that? Is there a way to talk about both things? That he died for this new spiritual reality on the by and by and eternal life out there, but also the physical realness of just laying his life down for his friends. You see, this is, this is what Jesus knew, and I'm, and I'm closing. He knew that if he lived this way, that if he was willing to let go of his convenience and embrace the pain, that he was willing to let go of reputation and to embrace... What? <laughs> Somebody help me. Embrace what? Life! it would result in his death. But it was the only way that God could live among us was a way that actually resulted in death and surrender. A lot of us, we, we can only perform these things because we haven't experienced the death and the surrender yet. And so we can't make it to the resurrection life that Jesus offers us. After the resurrection, the disciples went back to fishing in, in um, John chapter 21. They see a fire on the shore as dawn's approaching because they, they fish at night. And in, the guy standing by the fire calls out to them, says, friends, have you caught any fish? And it's Jesus. And he tells them where to cast down. They catch all these fish. Peter dives into the water, swims to the shore. And Jesus has breakfast all ready for him. Pancakes, eggs, everything, the whole spread. <laughs> and he has this conversation with Peter, famous conversation, asking Peter over and over, do you love me? And three times Peter answers, yes, Lord, I love you. And then he finishes that uh, encounter with these verses. In verse 21, after Peter says, yes, I love you, Lord. In verse 18, chapter 21, verse 18, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. After, and after this, he said to him, follow me. And Peter didn't even have a choice because he had experienced a love of a friend so deep, deeper than the currents of the Mississippi River that pulled him along 
to where he had experienced life to such a degree, to such a point, that it wouldn't matter what Jesus had said to him was going to happen to him if he followed him. If he was going to be hung up by his toenails, as my fourth grade teacher used to say, he would have followed Jesus because Jesus was offering life. Life. 